0: This is the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, a podcast brought to you by two physical therapists devoted to helping physical therapists and other healthcare providers become better educators to patients, students, the community, and each other by interviewing prominent and passionate people within the realms of healthcare and education. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast is intended literally for educational and entertainment purposes only. No clinical decision making should be based on only one source, and therefore this podcast should not be used as personal medical advice. While care has been taken to ensure accuracy, occasionally mistakes and factual errors can be present, as we are only human. This is our journey on the road to becoming better educators, so get ready with your pen and paper as class is about to begin. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Brandon Pollen, and I am one of two co-hosts. And of course, as always, I am joined by my other half, F. Scott Field. And today we have a very, very special guest to bring with you guys regarding an important issue that is upcoming within the physical therapy education realm. Tonight we welcome Dr. Kathy Myrella. Now, for those who don't know exactly who she is, she is a physical therapist and she is an assistant professor and director of clinical education at the Rutgers University DPT program. She has been a member of the board of directors within the APTA until completion of her term in June 2017, and she has been, a, she was appointed to be the chair of the best practices for physical therapist clinical education task force. Now, for those who don't know about this task force, the best practices for physical therapist clinical education task force was charged to consider strategies and provide recommendations to the APTA's board of directors to identify best practice for physical therapist clinical education from professional level through post-professional clinical training and propose potential courses of action for this doctoring profession to move forward towards practice that best meets the evolving needs of society and For those who haven't really seen a lot about that, the task force outlined these recommendations in a 2017 report to the APTA's House of Delegates, and with that being said, we're also going to post the links to the executive summary and the video summary in our podcast show notes for those who perhaps want to learn a little bit more. Now, Kathy, first of all, thank you so much for all that you have done throughout your career and stuff and for coming on the show today as we recently had your colleague Bob Rowe on the podcast for a great discussion on APTA member, board member perspective, and on the future of PT residency education. and you know, I realize I'm sure that I left a ton out of your CV and all that you've done. Um, but was there anything that you'd like our audience to know about you that I didn't mention in this brief intro?
1: Thanks. I think there are two points I'd like to emphasize that are really relevant to, to this work, to the Clinical Education Task Force work. One was that I was an assistant director of clinical education at Rutgers uh, for eight years from 2006 to 2014. And I stepped out um, because I was ready to step out and I was ready to do something a little bit different. Um, about halfway through 2016, which was halfway through the task force work, I was unexpectedly asked to become the director of clinical education. So at the same time I was working on this very high level report, uh, my day to day job changed so that I was li- literally living the life of a director of clinical education and really seeing the the grassroots level problems in in clinical education. Um, The other point that I wanted to make is that in my eight years on the board of directors, I had the ability to work on some very um, big picture kind of efforts. and, And I really consider myself a big picture person. I really enjoy Um, vision and thinking big and taking risks and big ideas. Um, And so part of my work assignments included serving on the public policy and advocacy committee, um, serving on the new professionals task force. I chaired the leadership development committee and an alternative payment system uh, work group and I was also the liaison to this student assembly so I was so fortunate because I was able to bring all of those different perspectives to this work and I think it's kind of a unique it gave me a unique opportunity um, to look to look big picture and to really look at all those different experiences that I had and and contribute to sharing this task force so those are my two two things I think, Are relevant and interesting.
2: Yeah, that's awesome, Kathy. And and speaking of big pictures here, uh, for our listeners who are hearing about this for the first time, could you tell us a little bit about why and how the task force was formed and how the task force kind of gathers their data?
1: Absolutely. So yeah, one of the big questions we get is where did this come from and why? Um, It came from a charge from the 2014 House of Delegates. And the House of Delegates is the elected leadership of the association, and they meet and they charge APTA, um, they adopt positions, they charge APTA to do things, and they charged APTA to investigate uh, PT clinical education. And they're very specific in what they wanted uh, APTA to do. Um, and that's that's included, that full um, motion is included in the task force report. And originally, there was an excellence in PT education task force that was formed in response to a separate motion in 2014. And when they looked at the volume of everything that they needed to accomplish, they realized that they needed to form a second task force. So the board of directors appointed this task force in 2015 to spend the year of 2016 basically addressing all of the elements that came out of the charge of this motion. And again, very, very specific charge. And I I don't wanna get too much into the governance details, but I do think it's important to understand that this was a governance-related report. It was not a research study, but it was designed to answer the questions that were raised in this motion. And there was a very tight timeline Um, because there was a specific requirement in the original motion that there would be a report back to the House of Delegates in 2017, in June of 2017. So the Board of Directors um, created a task force, and there's a whole process by which members can apply to be on a task force. And so that takes a while. We had um, over 95 individuals who put their name in to serve on this task force. And again, that task force appointment process happens by the Board of Directors. So those individuals needed to be recruited and appointed so that the work of the task force actually began in January. And then we were faced with this very large charge that said we needed to look at options, including relationships between academic institutions and clinical education sites, mandatory post-professional clinical training, stage licensure, um, look at other professions' models, look beyond entry-level PT clinical education, but look at post-professional training, and look at the scope of current and anticipated future needs. So we had this large project in front of us and and really needed to spend the first couple months of our work together, um, coming together and planning how we were going to tackle this charge. Um, And what we decided to do was spend about six months gathering information. And we gathered information through literature review and looking at anything that we thought was relevant. We looked at all of the past efforts that have been made in terms of investigating the issues in clinical education. And then we did deeper dives into the topics that were in the charge, like stage licensure, and um, we also did stakeholder interviews. And this was not broad-based stakeholder input. It was asking a few representatives from different groups that are knowledgeable about clinical education and really picking their brains. One of the questions we get is, well, why weren't these recommendations actually vetted with stakeholder groups Sooner, And the answer to that is this was a board of directors appointed task force. Our work needed to go back to the board of directors first before we were able to reach out to other stakeholders. One of the questions we've heard is, well, you know, we don't know if payers will compensate for um, a, a stage licensure process. But we really weren't able to go out and say, hey, payers, What would you think about this idea? Because the board hadn't seen it yet, so we needed to gather all this information and identify themes. And again, we spent about six months doing that, and then we spent the rest of the second half of 2016 really analyzing the themes that we came up with, looking at the literature, and identifying what we thought the major challenges were, and then coming up with the recommendation. So it was quite an extensive process. When we got to the end of the report, it went to the board of directors for their January 2017 meeting, which again needed to meet this deadline for June of 2017. And we had actually given them a little bit of a heads up to let them know that hey, we're really making some very big recommendations and we really need to think about how we want to get further stakeholder input. So the board did something very different. They took the report that was intended for them and decided to essentially share it raw with everyone. And that's a very different method for the board of directors. Typically they will get a report They will analyze it. They will tweak it and then send it out to the, to the house of delegates and to the membership. And in this case, it was so big that the board decided that it should go out to, it should be posted as is for the house of delegates. And then, of course, once it went to the house of delegates, it was public to all members. And that's when the stakeholder feedback process began, so probably more than you wanted to know, but i think I think it's relevant and important to understand the process behind the report.
0: No, absolutely. I totally actually really value that because that's actually a good insight to see how that really all was formed to kind of go with that and you know and Kathy, for our listeners who have not heard or read the recommendations from the task force, do you think you could briefly cover the recommendations that the task force recommended to address the issues of physical therapist, clinical education?
1: Sure. Absolutely. I think I could do this in my sleep, but I'll, I'll do it now. Um, the, I'm going to go in reverse order. Uh, recommendations four and five were that clinical education be incorporated into ongoing work regarding education data management systems. And that was recommendation four. Recommendation five was adding clinical education to the PT professions education research agenda. So these were, two, these are two already ongoing initiatives. And so the task force felt that clinical education needed to be pulled into these ongoing initiatives. The recommendation three is that there needs to be a strong framework between for formal partnerships between academic programs and clinical sites. And I, yeah, you spoke with Bob Rowe, my colleague, Bob Rowe, previously, um, and one of his, I think, really insightful lines is that right now we really don't have partnerships between academic and clinical sites. We have relationships. And partnerships includes economic models, Um, It really includes the clinical voice and and sharing of responsibility between the academic programs and the clinical sites. Recommendation two is that there be some standardization of PT clinical education, that there be a PT clinical education curriculum, again, allowing for some degree of um, variability and uniqueness among programs, but there needs to be some level of standardization and predictability. And then recommendation one is probably the biggest and most controversial of the recommendations. And what that recommendation says is that formal preparation for practice includes both professional PT education, followed by clinical internship and mandatory post-professional residency. And the intent of that statement was again, that formal preparation for practice would include all of those things. And it suggested that stage licensure and specialty certification become part of the normal expectation of formal preparation for practice. I think in recommendation one, um, there was a model or an illustration included in the report, and we debated, should we include a model? And we did because, because we kept asking, well, what might this look like? And I think that kind of took on a life of its own, that model. I think when uh, people read the report, they honed in on that particular model. And I'd like to emphasize that that was one model, that the conceptual background or the conceptual recommendation is that there be some bridge or link between the end of physical therapist, professional education, and those first year, two years, an early practice. I would just call that early practice. And so that was the the main intent of recommendation one. So that's the summary of five recommendations.
0: Awesome. And they definitely seem to have been showing up more in the PT world, especially on social media, because I know everyone's talking about this. And You talked about this before, about trying to get feedback, of course, from stakeholders and such. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to make the Education Leadership Conference this year in Columbus, but I plan on going to next year's conference in Jacksonville. Do you know what the results were from the Education Leadership Conference town hall on the recommendations of the task force?
1: Sure. Well, actually, there, there were, that was the fifth of five town halls. So, um, I actually participated in four previous town halls. Two were on site, um, in, in at the next conference in Boston. And then there were two that were virtual that happened over the summer. So those were a bit more interactive and Q and A. Um, this town hall in Columbus was primarily a report by the Education Leadership Partnership who collected this data on what they found in this survey. So that was, it really was not an interactive town hall as much as it was a presentation on the preliminary findings of the survey that will be going to the to the board of directors.
2: Yeah, Kathy, I know there's many people on both sides of the fence when it comes to mandatory residency uh, with the task force being in favor. Could you tell us the task force reasons and thoughts for coming up with mandatory residency recommendation?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a really great question because quite honestly, I I never thought I would end up supporting that recommendation on a, on a personal level. I tried to go in as everybody does with an open mind, but this was not something that I supported or, or believed in. And I was convinced after diving in to all of the data that we collected and looking at the literature that we're really talking about preparation for practice and that education only goes so far and that this idea of residency, the idea of something that happens after licensure and graduation that continues professional development in a structured way was desirable. We've had the same clinical education model for probably 50 plus years. And honestly, In some cases, it works really well. It works really well for the students, for the universities, for the clinical sites. There are, um, there is much that works well in clinical education. What has changed dramatically is practice. And I had the fortune of. Being a new graduate and practicing in an environment where we didn't have huge productivity requirements and we didn't have to scramble for reimbursement, and a new graduate didn't have to be able to literally, you know, carry a, a full caseload within the first few weeks of a, a new practice environment and being being a new graduate, and that's very different now. I think that the realization of the task force members is, you know, previously you could count on that first year practice being a a mentored somewhat structured environment and while that does happen in some institutions and facilities and practices the opposite also happens and again this is something that we heard from from students and from new professionals and we heard the expectation from some employers that you know we expect that if students are graduating with a doctor of physical therapy degree that they are ready to hit the ground running on their first day of hire. So we talked about what that should be. So if we want something to happen in that first year of practice, what should that look like? And then it dawned on us, well, we have something, it's called residency. And we, again, were thinking futuristically, we were not looking at residency as it exists right now. And again, I think that's a really important point for listeners to understand. We were thinking residency in a very broad sense, that you would have different kinds of residencies, that you'd actually have a residency that would be appropriate for the generalist practitioner, who's not ready to specialize because being a good generalist is actually a specialty. So that that was our thought process that got us to mandatory residency, that everyone should have that mentored, structured first year of practice. And we already have that residency framework.
0: Interesting. And, you know, and Kathy, to kind of go and mention the other side of it, you know, I know that there are others on the other side in which they believe that residency should not be mandatory, with of course reasons including, but not limited to, believing that residency education does not guarantee quality clinicians, um, not enough programs to satisfy the demands, unwanted variants in residency programs in the same specialty, um, the belief that change should occur within the DPT education programs with the material taught, and maybe changing it more of a CAPTI and FSPPT role. And, you know, and I realize there's probably way more that other people could say on that regard, but, you know, what are your thoughts on some of these reasons for not supporting mandatory residency?
1: I think there's a lot that needs to be further investigated in terms of mandatory residency. I think if we're looking at capacity that's a huge issue if we're really looking. My understanding is that the number of physical therapists now who enter residence is about 10%. So if we were to move in this direction, there would be a, a tremendous need to increase capacity if, if we really expected every new graduate to enter a residency program. So, so that's an enormous challenge. Um, I think we need more information on the cost um, it was there. The task force was incredibly clear that whatever happens with these recommendations, they should not increase student costs and they should not increase student debt. So in our minds, that was a deal breaker. If residency was going to add to student financial burden, that would certainly be a problem. I think the idea of residency education not guaranteeing quality clinicians I think um, I agree, but the requirements for a residency are so much higher than they are for clinical education. And that was another really big insight for me in, in doing this work, that you have criteria in residency programs. Again, once once the physical therapist is licensed, you have these structured residency programs that are very clear on what kind of mentorship is required. Um, and that doesn't happen in clinical education. What you have in clinical education is a, a, a license, a year's experience, and you know you can be a clinical instructor. So we looked at this residency model as something that would be, um, would be important in, again, getting that structure and that consistency in, in the mentorship.
2: Yeah, Kathy, those are some really great points, and, uh, you know, I think uh, keeping the cost down would be a breath of fresh air to these new students coming out. You know, do you know of any evidence that currently supports PT residency training resulting in improved patient outcomes?
1: Yeah, another, another great question. Um, to my knowledge, there are no studies that show that PT residency results in improved patient outcomes. Um, and, but again, I think there is, there's some work done on that first year of practice, both in PT and in other, and in other health professions and how important that is. Um, would, that would be a, a great study to do. And, and again, I think it's important to realize that the task force was looking at residency education in in the big picture and what it could look like in the future, um, not necessarily what it is today.
0: Awesome. And, you know, and Kathy, kind of looking back, I saw the results of the Clinical Education Task Force ad hoc communication survey on Twitter regarding kind of the first recommendation, which is mandatory residency, of course, which showed that there was overall not broad support for this. And of course, I realize this is just one survey, and I'm sure you know more about the data as well, and you mentioned that earlier. But what what are your thoughts based on the overall feedback from the stakeholders? And ultimately, what do you think the APTA Board of Directors will decide on November
1: 16th? Oh, those are really great questions. So, um, there are a couple of things that surprised me in what I've seen in the stakeholder survey. Um, one of which was those who didn't agree that there's a problem in clinical education. And myself, those who were on the task force were, were quite surprised to see that given all of the attention and the numerous conferences and efforts that have been made um, to deal with the uh, problems in, edu- in clinical education. I, I'm still wondering about that response to the survey, and it does make me um, question some of the other, some of the other responses. Uh, I do think that there are, that these were bold recommendations again, and that this report was written for the audience of the board of directors. I think it was a very complicated report and I think it was really challenging to take a year's worth of work, condense it into I believe 38 pages and a two page executive summary and really get the feel for the interrelatedness of these recommendations. Um, one of the questions that I've had is, why don't we just work on the easy stuff? Um, recommendations, you know, two and three and forget about recommendation one. And again, it's, it's such a complex issue. And recommendation one is really about the economics of this model. And, and so I was disappointed, but not surprised with the survey results. We suggested some really big changes. So, um, again, I'm I'm not surprised. The other point about the stakeholder response is that the Educational Leadership Partnership was in charge of collecting this data from the stakeholders, and they got a great response. Um, It did go out Um, through CPI web to many clinical instructors. So it did target clinicians in practice as well as the academic community. Um, The voice that I don't think we've heard from is the practice community that doesn't participate in clinical education and what are their thoughts and why not. So I think there's more stakeholder input that Needs to be gathered regardless of what the board does next. Um, but I do think that the, I think that the stakeholder feedback collected by the survey will absolutely be considered very carefully in, in, in the board's decision. And so you asked me, what do I think the APTA board of directors will decide? And I know they're, I, I know they'll be thinking very hard about this decision. It could, you could have two extremes where they either adopt all of these recommendations, which I personally believe is unlikely, or they could adopt none of them, which I also hope is unlikely. So they, that would, you know, they could all go away or they could all be adopted. My thought is that they will end up somewhere in the middle and figure out what are the next steps? Are there next steps? And what would we need to do with, with this information?
2: Yeah, so that's the perfect segue into my next question, Kathy. If if this does get implemented, you know, per the uh, frequently asked questions online, you know, it's unsure how long this process would take to implement. But you're you're looking at a goal of maybe twenty years. What do you think would be the first steps in this process?
1: I think the board would need to decide what questions need to be answered personally. I think there are questions about payment and reimbursement. And these all relate to recommendation one payment and reimbursement. Because again, we weren't able to vet these recommendations beyond our group and beyond our, um, beyond our task force initially. So we have questions related to payment for services and stage licensure. I think that's information that would need to be gathered. Um, as well as the issues related to residency capacity. So in my mind, if I were still a board member, That would be the information I would want before moving along. And then I think it is a matter of developing a plan for much broader stakeholder input. This would need to be an absolute collaborative effort among many uh, stakeholders, including employers and um, educational institutions and practice and research. You know, it it would be a very, very large project.
2: Yeah, it sounds like it. I mean, Kathy, it really seems like you know, recommendation number one is the heavy hitter here. Um, What do you think the APTA will do uh, with recommendation number one? Do you think they'll adopt it?
1: I'm not sure. I would like to say they'll adopt some form of it. I would be surprised if they adopt it, you know, in in a few weeks on, on its face value. I think the I think the data is pretty clear that we need more information. And I think the task force members would agree that um, it's a very bold recommendation and that it it's not quite ready for prime time.
0: Gotcha. No, that's a good insight, Erin and Kathy. And I know you kind of mentioned before in terms of looking at more data, getting more stakeholder feedback from different groups that you mentioned before, but let's just say that some of the big hitters here of this don't get implemented. And you know, besides getting more feedback, what do you think that the APTA Board of Directors would look to do next um, to address the problems brought up in the recommendations from the task
1: force? Oh, that that's a great question because the task force members felt so strongly that only a major shift in clinical education is going to solve the problems of clinical education capacity, quality, and and variability. Um, these are these are identified problems in clinical education. And again, there have been multiple attempts over the years to solve some of these problems. And we started our work as a task force saying, what are we going to do that's different? And I think we believe that fundamentally, unless there is a major shift, that these Band-Aid approaches that have been tried previously will continue to be unsuccessful. I think the board would look to the Educational Leadership Partnership to figure out what would be done next. And I do have to mention that um, the ACAPT, the Council uh, of Academic Physical Therapy, has a subgroup of uh, a clinical of clinical educators that have really been doing great work since they did a clinical education summit. Um, in terms of developing standard terminology. So, so there is ongoing work that is progressing basically because, you know, you don't have the organization of ACAPT, which provides academic programs, a a voice on issues. So I I think there's some opportunity there for that to continue. But I think this task force really looked at these fundamental economic issues that have a much broader reach. And so I'm not sure what the board would do next with that. I I don't think that's going away. I don't think the economic challenges are going away. We've seen clinical sites begin to talk about and and implement charging academic institutions for accepting their students. And, And I think when we're looking at, again, clinical pressures, reimbursement pressures, I don't think it's sustainable that we're going to continue to rely on the altruism of our clinical sites to continue to accept students in the volume that we're producing them right now. So I'm quite concerned that if nothing is done, that we really will have um, an unsustainable system going forward. So I feel pretty passionately about that one.
2: Yeah, Kathy, that is some great insight, and uh, I I can't thank you enough for taking your time out to come on and talk with us tonight. This this was a really enlightening episode about you know a lot of things that are about to start happening in the, in the world of physical therapy. Um, so thank you for that. But uh, we we like to pose this question to each one of our guests, kind of as a wrap up. Um, if you could change one aspect of healthcare education, DPT or other healthcare provider related, what aspect would you change, and how would you change it?
1: I love this question. So thanks for, thanks for asking. You can tell I'm a pretty big picture person and really enjoy big picture perspective. So what I change actually is not necessarily related to clinical education, but it's related to all healthcare providers really understanding healthcare delivery and health policy. Um, I think that. Interprofessional education, for example, is a step in the right direction, and that it helps us understand other healthcare providers' roles and perspectives in the healthcare system. But if you look at the triple aim, for example, if you look at the relationship between cost, quality, and access in healthcare, um, and the economic challenges in, in healthcare, I believe so strongly that PT is a solution in solving the major problems of the healthcare system. And I think providers need to need to understand that big picture so that, that our services are appropriately valued and we're not just sort of cogs in someone else's healthcare system. I think providers taking back control over how decisions are made in, in healthcare is is essential. And I think that's what we need to do in order to be ready for whatever this healthcare system of the future is going to look like.
0: Sure. And I think that's a really valid point, Kathy, in terms of talking about, you know, how we're as therapists, we have such benefits compared to others as well. We're able to really get to know patients long term. We get a good time with patients. We have good screening across a wide variety of dimensions. We have specialties within so many different realms in PT. But, I, yeah, I mean, we could do so much for the community and such. And I guess my question for you on of a follow-up to that is, how do you think specifically is the best way we should go about that to really kind of address that overall?
1: I do think this comes... With education, I think we need to change our educational programs to prepare students for the future and not just for um, for current practice. Like, it's great that we want to graduate our students. It's great that we have all these applicants to PT school, and it's great that most of them pass the NPTE, and it's great that they get jobs. But... Um, what are these again what are what are the opportunities in these changing models of healthcare care and you know how are they going to use technology uh, i i'll tell you an interesting little story um, I have my students in 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 a first year class look at different potential scenarios. And one of them was looking at telehealth and their bottom line was, you know, we should we should oppose telehealth because it takes away from what it is we do with our hands on. And, and I was really stunned by that because I believe that we should really be preparing our students for how PT can, you know, can work with tech. We're not going to stop technology. So how can PTs work with technology? Um, how can PTs use meaningful data? Because meaningful data is going to drive decision-making. How are we going to work with risk reduction in healthy populations? How are we going to save the healthcare system money in providing function to those with chronic diseases? There's just such opportunity out there. And I think it does start with sort of figuring out how educational programs can inspire this next generation to do that because it's it's happening in pockets in, in current practice, but I think the drive needs to come through education. Awesome. Well, Kathy, again, thanks so
0: much for coming on with everything. I've definitely learned a few things, definitely have changed my mind about a couple things. But, you know, where where can our listeners find you online and on social media?
1: Yeah, I'm pretty easy to find I'm on Twitter. I'm at Kathy Myrella, K-A-T-H-Y-M-A-I-R-E-L-L-A. And you can also find me, um, my name, Kathy Myrella, on LinkedIn. Those are probably the best places to reach me.
0: Awesome, Kathy. Well, thank you so much for everything. It's been a pleasure having you on.
1: Terrific. Thank you.
0: Thank you for attending class today. And we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content.
2: If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast,